from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Where did COVID-19 come from? Right now, we still don't know if it was a, a leak from a laboratory or it was from a spillover from an animal in a wet market. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. So did you? Did I just hear you say we still don't know if this was bioengineered? We still don't know. We talk with former CIA covert operative Robert Bayer. But that's just the intelligence side of this equation. What about the scientific side? It is not something that had been tampered with or in any way mutated, I guess. We dig further into the questions. Where did it come from? What's the status of it now in the U.S.? And what's the danger of reopening too soon? Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The exact origin of the COVID-19 coronavirus might be debated for years with no definite conclusion. There are allegations from the Chinese government that it was bioengineered by the U.S. military. There are other conspiracy theorists that say China created it itself. Then there's the most sound of all explanations so far, that it developed naturally. On this episode, we'll cover all of those perspectives. First, we start with a newspaper article that came from the Wall Street Journal today, April 22, 2020, written by James Aretti. It's called, China Bat Expert Says Her Wuhan Lab Wasn't Source of New Coronavirus. Internationally Respected Virologist who sequences bat viruses, finds herself in spotlight over COVID-19. She's called Batwoman by the Chinese media. 55-year-old Dr. Zhengli Shi is the principal investigator at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And she and her colleagues have a large library of coronaviruses and other pathogens collected over the years from bat colonies around China. In fact, according to the journal, they have a specimen in their lab that's a 96% match for the COVID-19 virus ravaging the world now. It was taken in 2013. What's interesting is that Chinese scientists pointed out a couple of months ago that this lab was very close to the wet market where most people think this virus originated. According to the paper, since Dr. Xi's lab was thrust into the spotlight, they've withdrawn their research. And that's, in part, what's led to so much suspicion about where this came from. Dr. Xi said in the paper she would, quote, guarantee on my life that this virus did not come from one of their labs. Intelligence collection is usually how the U.S. figures things like this out. But considering the virus has locked down the world in various stages, intelligence gathering is very difficult. I spoke with former CIA covert operative 
Robert Bayer about the uncertainty of all of this and the difficulty in getting rid of that uncertainty. What, what are the intelligence agencies and services around the world doing in the wake of this? Well, I mean, the problem is they're, they're pretty much blinded, whether you're in Peking or, or you're in Beijing or Paris or you, you can't go out and make a meeting. I mean, in France, you need a letter to go out. So spies working out of the embassy in Paris can't go out. Uh, we don't know what the French are doing. Um, it, it confines you to telephones, say, especially in China. And you can't, you can't operate in a place like China on telephones. And don't forget that China is, is, is key to this coronavirus, too. I mean, what the real figures are. Uh, you you need that data. Um, I don't. We can't trust the Chinese. Um, you know, it, it, and that's not to not to single out the Chinese because a lot of governments are not coming up with the real data or real projections. But it's 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 blinded us in a lot of ways. It's 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 basically left intelligence collection to the National Security Agency in intercepting WhatsApp or whatever to find out what's going on. So. What kind of risk is the U.S. facing um, because it's blinded by this? How much are hostile intelligence agencies taking advantage of this? Well, there's two, there's two answers. There are at least two questions. And, and one is it's killing us uh, not knowing what's happening in China. It's killing us not knowing what's happening in North Korea with coronavirus or Russia. Um, just how bad are things there? I mean, how bad politically are things in Russia right now? Is it undermining uh, the Russian government? Is it undermining Putin? We simply don't know. Um, you know, I, I, it's it's a terrible time to be losing intelligence. You know, I mean, if I were in Beijing right now, I would have people up in Wuhan hitting every hospital, um, hitting, um, you know, data centers where you can you can figure out how bad it is. I mean, right now we still don't know if it was a, a leak from a laboratory or it was from a spillover from an animal in a wet market. Wait, um, wait, wait, wait. So did you? Did I just hear you say we still don't know if this was bioengineered? We still don't know. We, there is wow. simply because we don't have access to the data. The Chinese don't like us. They don't trust us. They figure that anything they give us will be used mis politically misused. Um, they have doubts about our role in this. And as relations decline between us and China, they'll be less willing to give us give us hard information. It's just the way it goes. It always has. So the so, only way you can get that information is go steal it. What um, elements or what factors uh, are you taking into consideration um, saying that perhaps, you know, this could have been bioengineered. Are there facilities nearby? Are there operators nearby? There, There's a facility in Wuhan, and there's a level four lab there. They were, I mean, the Chinese have been doing this for a long time since SARS, um, doing research on viruses. They're probably better than most. Um, and there's certainly speculation. Look, the speculation is occurring in, in among conspiracy theorists, but it's also it's also very real. And the real question is, we don't know. We what we don't know is, for instance, what mutations are occurring, or what did occur, or what this is bioengineered. We just don't know. I mean, I think one day 
it just takes for years to get to the bottom of something like this, as it did for SARS and MERS. What should the U.S. be doing? What ought the U.S. be doing, the U.S. intelligence community? Well, it's what they should be doing is, for me, being an ex-CIA guy, is recruiting spies in places like Moscow and Beijing. But, but clearly, you can't do that. It's all done face-to-face, and you need to get out. Uh, we should also be supporting any sort of... Um, you know, missions to places like China to figure out what's, you know, what's going on there. Because the fact that we missed it in December was a gigantic intelligence failure. Somebody should have been jumping up and down in the Oval Office saying, this what is going to come here. We can't keep it out. I mean, that is, it is very clear at this point that that message was either rejected by the White House or was not delivered. Those are your two choices. Now, every day we hear something a little bit different on this. The White House says that, um, you know, it it took action uh, in February, but uh, where were the warnings in November? We were told that they were warned. The National Center for uh, Medical Intelligence was supposedly supposedly delivered a briefing. Did they do it or not? The... um, Trade rep- the trade executive Peter Navarro said, you know, uh, you know, he supposedly wrote several memos warning of uh, cataclysmic um, outcomes if the if the White House didn't do anything. But none of that seems to nobody seems to be able to to verify any of that. So, do you think? But that's- well, JJ, you've got a cult in the White House, and with cults, it's hard to break through. They want to hear what they want to hear. Uh, they're getting whatever intelligence they think is necessary on Fox News or other right-wing outlets, press outlets. And, you know, know, some some scientist, some PhD out of the CIA, virologist, can't get to the White House. You can't break through. They're not going to listen. Plus, the White House doesn't really appreciate fact. It, 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 It undermines their ideological message. And this is what you get. Um, you know, so I mean, it's like it's like the it's like the commander of the the Teddy Roosevelt, the carrier. Yeah. He desperately tried to get people to pay attention that there was an outbreak of coronavirus on his boat. No one would listen, so he writes a letter. I mean, he writes he writes an email that goes around and gets leaked as he thought it would. But he was desperate. When you're out in a situation like that, I've been in them, and people aren't listening, you start screaming louder, and that's what he did. And yeah. for his efforts, he got fired and his career destroyed. Now, if you're sitting out the CIA and the the president of the United States is not listening to your warnings, your choice is you'll probably still be ignored and get fired. And And that's the message going through the intelligence community, that if you tell an unpleasant truth in the White House, that's it for your career. That is chilling. To say the least. Now, well, to- we, we, JJ, we've seen the evidence of it. It's not just my conspiracy theory. We just you see it every single day. What about the career people that are in the White House from the intelligence agencies? Where, what, where are they now? The, they, they can't do anything about it. I mean, they they just they can only do stuff at the margins. This is the problem. It doesn't pay to to stand up to the president. You have an FBI director said, look, you cannot interfere in a Department of Justice investigation into Russian meddling. That's not the way you're just and he got fired and he's been lambasted by the president 
and now the attorney general. And you can trust me that that message is going through the government. And it's a question that didn't even do any good for, for Comey to come out and say, don't interfere with my investigation. And now you have the attorney general saying it was a complete travesty, as if, as if the Russians didn't, hadn't gotten into DNC emails. Complete twisting of fact. So for, for, this, for this administration, facts are immoral. What is it that the Russians and the Chinese are thinking right now? The U.S. is in dire straits. It needs medical equipment. It needs drugs. Chinese uh, control of those doesn't make it guarantee that the U.S. will get it, get what they need. The Russians are, according to sources I've spoken to, are just sitting back continuing to smile because the U.S. is... It's contorted into, I don't know what now, trying to figure out its way forward. Well, if the Chinese and the Russians have a brain, they know that taking down the United States economically or, 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 or causing disruptions in supply chains would also hurt them in, in a major way. If Russia has no place to sell its oil, it goes under too. So I don't know what Putin's thinking, but they certainly have no confidence in our ability to react rationally to this crisis. I mean, right now, JG, we've got supply lines going down internally inside this country. Uh, and it will continue to, and we are heading for a depression, which will take the rest of the world into a depression. So, you know, blaming the Russians and the Chinese as somehow they engineered this is is sort of a, a hard right conspiracy theory, which yeah. just doesn't hold up to fact. Um, okay. You know, but uh, but this is the craziness is anytime a society goes under, uh, whether economically or socially, like Germany and the Weimar Republic, you'll see the crazy, the crazies come out. They're hard at work. Any final thoughts then on this? Um, there's so many things we could talk about, but I, I, I won't, I won't um, belabor the fringe points at this point. I, what I will ask, though, is um, how long are we going to be in for this? And what, people, people want to know when things are going, going to go back to normal, but to me it seems that that will not, cannot, and must not happen until there is a vaccine for whatever this is that's going on. You, you, need, you need a vaccine and testing. And right now the federal government is doing nothing to further that it, 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 with any sort of speed. I mean, this, this is, truly is a world war, but unlike World War II, we are not mobilizing resources. And you've got a president who thinks he's the king, and th that is not gonna help with states. You, you, this, you will go to the grave still feeling the effects of this crisis, trust me. That's former CIA covert operative Robert Bayer. And just to be clear and transparent, we've asked the White House and the National Security Council on numerous occasions for statements and interviews regarding this and other matters. They've either declined or sent us a message off the record, which we can't repeat here, basically giving us very little, if anything, that we can use to present their side. But now, back to the other side of the story, and that's the scientific side. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo is a senior scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health and Security and associate of the Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. We asked her what she's seen and heard when it comes to the true origin of the COVID-19 virus. So, um... Just to say that I am speaking based on my what I have heard from others who are far more expert than I in this. And um, 
you know, what the really smart virologists that I know say is that they have looked at the sequence of this virus and they have kind of mapped it out in the lineage of, of other known coronaviruses and that they very much believe that this um, originated in bats and how it may have evolved over time is not unusual for a virus, suggesting that it is not something that um, had been tampered with or in any way um, mutated, I guess, deliberately. Mm-hmm. What, what do you think about the, the case situation that we have in the U.S. right now and the looking forward on this? Um, you know, everybody's been talking about flattening the curve and Mm-hmm. You know, things that have been put in place um, to uh, mitigate the spread of this. Um, is it working effectively? Uh, is there Are there things that could be done differently or better? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that if you look at the total um, occurrence of new cases in the United States, um, there's evidence that the number of new cases occurring each day is slowing, which is um, great news overall. Um, that said, uh, about half of the U.S. cases have been reported by three states, uh, New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. So um, the fact that those three states, I think, are having some success in um, slowing the spread of the disease, um, in part because they have um, enacted these restrictions, these kind of population-based restrictions that we call social distancing. Um, so uh, the national numbers benefit from their success. Um, it's not necessarily the case all across the country. And there are um, many communities in the United States in which um, the numbers are not headed in the the right direction, that the numbers are continuing to climb. Um, These are places that tend to be smaller. And so the total numbers may not make the national news, but um, they are very much worrisome because oftentimes in um, these communities, the healthcare resources are Uh, less plentiful. And so um, even a small number of critically ill patients could overwhelm a local health system. Yeah. So I'm very worried about those communities in particular um, because, uh, you know, um, though, uh, like I said, the numbers may be small, we could have really severe outcomes there. Lots of um, hospitalizations, critical illness and death unless something is done to try to slow the growth of those cases, the, the number of new cases that are occurring. I was reading the Axios piece, uh, Why Reopening Any State Now is a Gamble, and they quote you in there saying, I have not seen any place of master plans or resources to do that. Why do you believe that, or what makes you, what leads you to that, to that conclusion? Well, one thing that we have to remember is that these broad-based measures that are enacted at the population level, these po- social distancing measures, these are not a cure for this disease. They don't stop the spread of the virus. They're just a pause button. They're putting us in our houses so that we're less likely to infect others. But the virus is still out there. And so as long as we think about going back to life outside of our houses, there is always there's the strong possibility that the virus will start to circulate again. And unless we have measures in place to deal with the rise in cases that will occur when we release these um, social distancing measures, then we could easily find ourselves right back where we started, where suddenly the case numbers have grown so quickly and are growing so quickly that we are fearful that the health system is on the brink of collapse, um, where we don't have enough resources to deal with individual cases. And so we have to take this very blunt and frankly, 
very disruptive measure in order to try to um, quickly get a handle on things. But if we don't, if we want to avoid that, if we want to make sure that if we leave our homes now, we don't have to go back in a major way, then we need to make sure we have in place measures to deal with individual cases as they occur. So we need to be able to find those cases, and that's going to require doing more testing than we're doing now. We're going to need to be able to figure out who those cases may have um, exposed while they've been contagious, find those people, let them know they've likely been exposed, monitor them, test them. And um, if they become ill, anyone who becomes infected needs to be isolated so that they don't transmit their infection to others. That's, it sounds simple, and it's yeah. traditional public health, but <laughs> it's incredibly resource-intensive. And so we, we need to make sure that we have enough resources to be able to do that. Yeah, you know, and speaking of that, you know, one of the things that people have been talking about in in recent days has been people who may have some type of immunity to it or have antibodies or whatever. It may be something that you just have for a while and it goes away. And should we look at this the same way, not from a... Uh, a danger point of view, uh, you know, with the mm. risk from this particular uh, illness, the same as we look at the flu, but should we look at it from a, the perspective that whatever you have, if you are, if you do have antibodies, or if you are, you know, okay right now, you still, if we get a vaccine or whatever, you still will probably have to do that each year. Is that right? Or is that close to it? Um, so this virus is a bit different than the flu. Um, the flu uh, changes each year. Mm -hmm. And um, so far, we don't have a lot of evidence of this virus changing. Oh. Um, I, I think compared to influenza viruses, coronaviruses tend to be a little bit more stable. Mm -hmm. So it's possible we wouldn't have to change it each year, but it depends on how um, they develop the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, so that's potentially good news on the vaccine front. Um, the bad news right now is, is really more the absence of data, um, which is that we don't fully understand immunity with respect to this virus. So we don't fully know that if, if you had, you got sick now, um, you know, for how long you're protected and um, would, uh, you know, one of the reasons why people have been stressing the importance of doing these clinical trials is we want to make sure that um, giving someone who may have been infected in the past the vaccine, that it doesn't. Um, make it worse for them. There's some viruses where um, repeated exposure actually kind of turns your immune system on in a way in a way that's um, bad. Um, so we need to make sure that that's not the case with this virus. And so that's one of the reasons why um, the studies are ongoing, and we're not just trying to jump ahead and, and vaccinate everybody right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, have you ever seen anything like this in your lifetime? No. I mean, so this is not the first pandemic I've lived through. Um, you know, we had a pandemic in 2009. If, um, if you remember, there was the H1N1 influenza yes. pandemic. That was probably our, mo our most recent pandemic. Um, to your earlier question about where this originated from, um, we d first discovered the H1N1 pandemic that occurred in 2009 um, in the United States. 
And um, we never quite figured out exactly the origins of that. I'm not implying anything just to say that it's not uncommon for there to be a debate about how things originated. But the end doesn't really matter because mm-hmm. um, that virus is still with us today. It's part of the seasonal flu mix um, that we deal with every every year. Um, there was uh, many years of preparation for an influenza pandemic prior to 2009 that, frankly, I think um, helped us when that virus emerged. Um, so there was a stockpile of masks and gloves and all sorts of other personal protective equipment. Um, there were stockpiles of antiviral medications that could be used against influenza. Um, lots of planning at the state and local level for trying to slow the spread of the virus. And we were able to quickly stand up surveillance and do testing. Um, and we were benefited by the fact that the virus turned out to be not that severe um, compared to what it could have been. So um, we sort of got lucky <laughs> um, with that respect. And also um, some of the the success in the response to that was due to a lot of um, hard work and investment in pandemic preparedness. Mm-hmm. Um, so living through that experience is possibly, um, I think, an interesting comparison to what we are dealing with now, um, which is frankly not unlike, not like anything I have seen. I mean, this virus is much more challenging to respond to than that virus was, um, but our preparedness is also so much weaker than it was back then. Yeah. So um, it's it's really unreal, and I think the level of disruption we're seeing exceeds even some of the kind of worst case you know, most pessimistic planning scenarios, um, I think most people had in mind just how much cost to our economy and um, how much cost to people's lives, um, not just from a disease standpoint, but just the disruption and, and, and other losses. I mean, it's really been extraordinary. And this moment in time, the closest thing that, if, that I've experienced in my life to this moment in time and just in terms of the kind of chaos and turmoil and stress is probably um, September 11th. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just feels like that, that moment where you think uh, you're living through something historic. And it looks as though we may be living through this historic moment for quite a while. Dr. Jennifer Nuzzo from Johns Hopkins University. She's an epidemiologist and a very respected person in that field. Target USA will continue to cover the COVID-19 outbreak, the origin, the status, and where we go after this particular outbreak has calmed down. Coming up in future episodes, we'll be back with another episode shortly. In the meantime, if you have questions or comments about the program, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word at WhiskeyTangoOscarPapa.com jgreen at WTOP.com Also, follow us on Twitter, please. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. At TUSA Podcast. Also, if interested in more international and national security news, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff. You can do it at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA, the national security podcast. Hey, I got a new podcast coming. 
It's called Theory. Don't you know? This is Theo Rossi. Our world is changing. For many of us, it'll never feel the same. The important thing to remember is that we are all in this together. And that's some of what I want to talk about on my new show, Theory. We're going to discuss the things that no one ever does. The real talk, the sacrifice, and the struggle that everyone goes through. My life has kind of put me in a unique position to see things honestly. This is Theo Rossi, and my new show, Theory, launches on April 8th, officially on Spotify, Podcast One, and Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.